Section 31 of the Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Gallagher. The Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume 12, Section 31. While Europe and America are peddling saving grace in pagan lands, and, incidentally, extending the market for their cheap tobacco, snide jewelry, and forty-rod bug juice, they are also building warships and casting cannon, preparing to cut each other's throats while prating of the Prince of Peace. The idea of countries that have to build forts on their frontiers and keep colossal standing arbories to avoid being butchered by their own Christian brethren. They are full of divorce courts and demagogues, penitentiaries and poorhouses, sending young theological goslings who believe that all of divine revelation can be found in one book to teach the philosophic Hindu the road to heaven. Gall! Why, the men who were trying to convert were preaching the immortality of the soul when the Hebrew prophets were putting people to the sword for accepting it. They were familiar with all the essential features of the Christian faith a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. Charity begins at home. In our own country, Children are coming up in ignorance and crime, while sect vies with sect in the erection of proud temples in which polite society may display its Parisian finery while pretending to worship one who broke bread with beggars and slept in the brush. I haven't much use for gold-plated godliness. Christ never built a church, or asked for a vacation on full pay. Never. He indulged in no political harangues, never told his parishioners how to vote, never posed as a professional prohibitionist. He didn't try to reform the fallen women of Jerusalem by turning them over to the police, a la Parkhurst. Although gladiatorial shows were common in his country, and that without gloves, he didn't go raging up and down the earth like some of our Texas dominies, demanding that these awful crimes against civilization should cease. There is no record of his engineering a boycott against businessmen who dissented from his doctrine. I think he could have read a copy of the Iconoclast with far more patience than some of his successors. Human or divine, he was the grandest man that ever graced the mighty tide of time. His was a labor of love instead of for lucre. The groves were his temples, the mountainside his pulpit, the desert his sacristy, and Jordan his baptismal font. Then there's the unconscious gall of the pious parrot who is quite sure that the only highway to the heavenly hereafter is outlined by his little sect, macadamized by his creed, that you've got to travel that or get into trouble perhaps fall into the fire. Just imagine that our dear Lord, who so loved sinners that he died to save them from death eternal, looking over heaven's holy battlements and observing a miserable mortal plunging downward to his doom, leaving behind him a streak of fire like a falling star, his face distorted with fear, his every hair erect and singing like a Jew's harp. He asks St. Peter, Who's that? Oh, says the man at the door, that's old John Smith. The Lord goes over to the office of the recording angel and turns the leaves of the great ledger. He finds the name John Smith, number 11,027, and on the credit page these entries. He was fearless as Caesar, generous as Messenus, tender as Watama, and true to his friends as the stars to their appointed courses. He was a knight of nature's nobility, a lord in the aristocracy of intellect, courtier at home, and a king abroad. On the debit page he reads, went fishing on Sunday. There was a miscue on his baptism. He knew a pretty woman from an ancient painting. 
a jackpot from a prayer book, and when smitten on one cheek, he made the smacker think he'd been smuck by a cyclone. Goodbye, John. It may be that the monarch of the majestic universe marches around after every inconsequential little mortal, notebook in hand, giving him a white mark when he prays for the neighbors who poisons his dog, or tells his wife the truth regardless of consequences, a black one when he bets his money on the wrong horse, or sits down on the sidewalk and tries to swipe the front gate as it goes sailing by. But I doubt it. If I could make the sun, moon, and stars in one day, and build a beautiful woman of an old bone, I'd just like to see the color of that man's hair I'd waste much time and attention on. Why should we quarrel about our faiths and declare that this is right and that is wrong, when all religions are, and must of necessity ever be, fundamentally one and the same, the worship of a superior power, the great Father of all, in every age, in every clime adored, by saint, by savage, and by sage, Jehovah, Jove, or Lord. Man's cool assumption that the Almighty made him as his masterpiece should be marked Exhibit A in the mighty aggregation of Gaul, that after millions of years' experience in the creation business, after building the archangels and the devil, after making the man in the moon and performing other wondrous miracles, the straddling six-foot biped who wears spike-tail coat and plug hat, a silk surcingle and sooner tie, who parts his name on the side and his hair in the middle, who sucks a cane and simpers like a schoolgirl struggling with her first compliment, who takes it for granted that he knows it all when his whole life, including his birth, marriage, and death, is a piece of ridiculous guesswork, who insists that he has a soul to save, yet labors with might and main to lose it, protests that there is a better land beyond the grave, yet moves heaven and earth to keep from going to it so long as he can help it. The assumption, I say, that this was the best the Creator could do as prima facie evidence of a plentitude of gall of the purest ray serene. The calm assurance of man that the earth and all it contains were made for his especial benefit, that woman was created solely for his comfort, that the sun was made to give him light by day and the moon to enable him to find his way home from the lodge at night without the aid of a policeman, that the heavens were hung with a resplendent curtain of stars and the planets sent whirling through space in a majestic dance about the god of day simply to afford him matter for wonder or for amusement when too tired to talk politics or too bilious to drink beer evinces an egotism that must amuse the almighty masterpiece indeed why god made man and finding that he couldn't take care of himself made woman to take care of him and she proposes to discharge her heaven-ordained duty or know the reason why Tennyson says that as the husband is, the wife is. But even Tennyson didn't know it quite all. When wives take their hubbies for measures of morality, marriage will become an enthusiastic failure, and Satan be loosed for a little season. We acknowledge woman's superiority by demanding that she be better than we could if we would, or would be if we could. We are fond of alluding to woman as the weaker vessel, but she can break the best of us if given an opportunity. Pope calls man the great Lord of all things, but Pope never got married. We rule with a rod of iron the creatures of the earth and air and sea. We hurl our withering defy in the face of kings and brave presidential lightning. We found empires and straddle the perilous political issue, then surrender unconditionally to a little bundle of dimples and deviltry, sunshine and extravagance. No man ever followed freedom's flag for patriotism and a pension, with half the enthusiasm that he will trail the red, white, and blue 
they constitute the banner of female beauty. The monarch's fetters cannot curtail our haughty freedom, nor nature's majestic forces confine us to this little lump of clay. We tread the ocean's foam beneath our feet, harness the thunderbolts of imperial Jove to the jaunting car, and even aspire to mount the storm and walk upon the wind, yet the bravest of us tremble like cowards and lie like cretins when called to account by our wives for some of our cussedness. But you will say that I have wandered from my text, have followed the ladies off and got lost. Well, it's not the first time it's happened, but really I am not so inconsistent as I may seem, for if the gentler sex exceeds us in goodness, it likewise surpasses us in gall. Perhaps the most colossal exhibit of polite and elegant audacity this world can boast is furnished by the female who has made a marriage of convenience, has wedded money instead of a man, practically put her charms up at auction for the highest bidder, yet who poses as a paragon of purity, gathers up her silken skirts, the price of her legalized shame, lest they come in contact with the calico gown of some poor girl who has loved not wisely but too well. Marriage is the most sacred institution ever established on earth, making the father, mother, and child a veritable holy trinity, but it is rapidly degenerating into an unclean humbug in which greed is God and gall is recognized high priest. We now consider our fortunes rather than our affections, acquire a husband or wife much as we would a parrot or a poodle, and get rid of them with about as little compunction. Cupid now feathers his arrows from the wings of the gold eagle, and shoots at the stomach instead of the heart. Love without law makes angels blush, but law without love crimson even the brazen brow of infamy. But the fact that so many selfish, soulless marriages are made is not altogether woman's fault. Our ridiculous social code is calculated to crush all sentiment and sweetness out of the gentler sex, to make woman regard herself as merchandise rather than as a moral entity entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The average woman must select a husband from a narrow circle, must make choice among two or three admirers, or elect to live a loveless old maid, to forego the joys of motherhood, the happiness of a home. Man is privileged to go forth and seek a mate. The world is before him a veritable dream of fair women. He wanders at will as amid a mighty parterre of flowers, sweet is the breath of morn, and finally, before some fair blossom, he bows the knee, pours forth the incense of his soul to the one woman in all the world he would make his wife. True, she may refuse him and marry some other fellow, but he is at least privileged to approach her, to plead his cause, to imply all the art and eloquence of love, to bring her into his life. Woman enjoys no such privilege. She must wait to be wooed, and if her king comes not, she must take the best that offers and try to be content. Every daughter of Eve dreams of an ideal, of a man tender and true who will fill her life with love's own melody, his words her law, his home her heaven, his honor her glory, and his tomb her grave. And some day, from these castles in the clouds he comes, these daydreams, golden as the dawn, become the halo of a mortal man, to whom her heart turns as the helianthus to the sun. At last the god of her adultery doth walk the earth, but she must stand afar, must not, by word or act, betray the holy passion that's consuming her, lest that monster custom of habit's devil doth brand her bold and bad. Love oft-times begets love, as the steel strikes fire from the cold flint, and a word from her might bring him to her feet. 
but she must stand with dumb lips and assume indifference and see him drift out of her life, leaving it desolate as the Scythian desert, when it should have budded and blossomed like the great blush rose. So she drifts desolate into old maidenhood and the company of Maltese cats, else when hope is dead in her heart, when the dream of her youth has become dust and ashes, she marries for money and tries to feed her famished heart with Parisian finery to satisfy her soul with the Dead Sea fruit of fashion. No, I wouldn't give woman the ballot, not in a thousand years. I want no petticoats in politics, no she-senators or female presidents. But I'd do better by woman. I'd repeal that ridiculous social law, survival of female slavery, which compels her to wait to be wooed. I put a hundred leap years in every century, give woman the right to do half the courting, and find a man to her liking and capture him if she could. Talk about reforms. Why, the bachelors would simply have to become Benedicts, or take to the brush, and there'd be no old maids outside the dime museums. But I was speaking of Gaul. Gaul is usually unadulterated impudence, but sometimes it is irredeemably idiocy. When you find a man pluming himself on his ancestors, you can safely set it down that he's got the disease in his latter form, and got it bad. I always feel sorry for a man who's got nothing to be proud of but a dead granddaddy, for it appears to be the law of nature that there should be but one great man to a tribe, that the lightning of genius shall not strike twice the same family tree. I suppose that Cleveland and Jim Corbett, Luther and Mrs. Lease, Homer and J.S. Hogg, had parents and grandparents, but we don't hear much about them. And while the ancestors of the truly great are usually lost in the obscurity of the cornfield or cotton patch, their children seldom succeed in setting the world on fire. Talent may be transmitted from father to son, but you can no more inherit genius than you can inherit a fall out of a balloon. It is the direct gift of that God who is no respecter of persons, and who sheds his glory on the cotter's child as freely as on the monarch's and of millionaires. We have in this country three aristocracies. The aristocracy of intellect, founded by the Almighty, the aristocracy of money, founded by Maimon, and the aristocracy of family, founded by fools. The aristocracy of brains differs from those of birth and boodle as stars differ from a jack-o'-lantern, as the music of the spheres from the bray of a burrow, as a woman's first love from the stale affection hashed up for a fourth husband. To the aristocracy of money belong many worthy men, but why should the spirit of mortal be proud? The founder of one of the wealthiest and most exclusive of American families skinned beeves and made wienerwurst. The calling was an honest and useful one. His sausages were said to be excellent, and at a skin game he was exceptionally hard to beat. But his descendants positively declined to put a calf's head regarding and a cleaver rampant on their coat of arms. A relative, much addicted to the genealogical habit, once assured me that he could trace our family back six hundred years just as easy as following the path to the drugstore in a prohibition town. I was delighted to hear it, to learn that I too had ancestors, that some of them were actually on the earth before I was born. While he was tracing, I was figuring. I found that in six hundred years there should be twenty generations, if everybody did his duty, and that in twenty generations a man has... 2,093,056 ancestors. Just think of it. Why, if he'd gone back 600 years farther, he might have discovered that I was a lineal descendant of Adam, perhaps distantly related to crowned monarchs, if not to the Duke of Marlborough. As my cousin couldn't account for the job lot of kinsmen, had no idea how many had been hanged, got into politics or written poetry, I rang off. 
those people who delight to trace their lineage through several generations to some distinguished man should be tapped for the simples. When John Smith starts out to found a family and marries Miss Jones, their son is half Smith and half Jones. The next crop is nearly one-fourth Smith, and at the end of a dozen generations the young Smiths bear about as much relation to the original as they do to a rabbit. There are various grades of gall, but perhaps the superlative brand is that which leads a man to look down with lofty scorn upon those of his fellow mortals who have tripped on life's rugged pathway and plunged into a shoreless sea of shame. I am no apologist for crime. I would not cover its naked hideousness with the Erechine robe of sentiment, but I do believe that many a social outcast, many a branded criminal, will get as sweet a harp in the great hereafter as those who have kept themselves unspotted from the world. It is easy enough to say grace over a good square meal, to be honest on a fat income, to praise God when full of pie. But just wait till you get the same razzle-dazzle the devil dished up for Job, and see how your holla-hallelujahs hold out before exalting your horn. Victory does not always proclaim the hero, nor virtue the saint. It were easy enough to sail with wind and tide, to float over fair seas mid purple isles of spice. But the captain who loses his ship mid-tempest, dire, mid-wreck, and wrath, may be a better sailor and a braver than the master who rides safe to port with rigging all intact and every ensign flying. With the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave. It were easy enough to be a good citizen and a consistent Christian. It is poverty and contempt, suffering and disappointment that try men's souls, that proclaim of what metal they are made. Faith, hope, and charity are man's triune transcendent, and the greatest of these is charity. A Pharisee is either a pious fraud or a hopeless fool. He's either short on gumption or long on gall. Half the alleged honesty of this world is but gall, and must be particularly offensive to the Almighty. We have oodles of men in every community who are legally honest but morally rotten. Legal honesty is the brand usually proclaimed as the best policy. Only fools risk the penitentiary to fill their purse. The smart rogue is ever honest within the law, infamous in strict accord with the criminal code. Davies may attire himself in purple and fine linen, and fare sumptuously every day, while Lazarus lies at his door for the dogs to lick, vainly craving the crumbs that fall from the millionaire's table, and still be legally honest, even a church member in good standing. But his loyalty to legal forms will avail him but little when he finds his coat-tails afire and no water within forty miles. The girl who flirts with a featherless young gosling till he doesn't know whether he's floating in a sea of champagne to the sound of celestial music, sliding down a greased rainbow, or riding on the ridgepole of the aurora borealis, then tells him that she can only be a kind of Christmas present opera ticket sister to him, who steals his unripe affections and allows him to get frostbitten, carries him into the imperium of puppy love only to drop him with a dull plunk that fills his callow heart with compound fractures. Well, she cannot be prosecuted for petite larceny, nor indicted for malicious mischief, but the unfortunate fellow who finally gets her will be glad to go to heaven where there's neither marrying nor giving in marriage. The man who preaches prohibition in public and pays court to a gallon jug of corn juice in private, who damns the saloon at home and sits up with it all night abroad, may not transcend the law of the land, but if his gall should burst, the very buzzards would break their necks trying to get out of the country. 
the druggist who charges a poor dunderhead a dollar for filling a prescription that calls in latin for a spoonful of salt and an ounce of water may do no violence to the criminal code but he plays ducks and drakes with the moral law the little tin-horn attorney whose specialties are divorce cases and libel suits who stirs up good for noughts to sue publishers for ten thousand dollar damages for ten-cent reputations who's as ready to shield vice from the sword of justice as to defend virtue from stupid violence who's ever for sale to the highest bidder and keeps eloquence on tap for whoever cares to buy who would rob the orphan of his patrimony on a technicality or brand the virgin mary as a bod for to shield a blackmailer well he cannot be put into the penitentiary more's the pity but it's some satisfaction to believe that if in all the great universe of god there is a hell where fiends lie howling the most sulphurous section is reserved for the infamous shyster that if he cannot be debarred from the courts of earth he'll get the bounce from those of heaven the woman who inveigles some poor fool perhaps old enough to be her father into calling her his tootsie wootsie over his own signature then brings suit for breach of promise or the seventh commandment who exhibits her broken heart to the judge and jury and demands that it be patched up with uncle sam's illuminated anguish plasters who plays the adventurous then poses in the public prints as an injured innocent sends a good reputation to join a banned character in hope of monetary reward well she too may be legally honest but it's just as well to watch her for no woman worth powder to blow her to perdition ever did or ever will carry such a case into court when a woman's heart is really hurting her money is not going to help it when she's truly sorry for her sin she tells her troubles to the lord instead of to policemen and reporters the man who sues his fellow-citizen for alienating his wife's affections instead of striking his tails with a bell-mouthed blunderbuss and a muzzle-loading bulldog who asks the court to put a silver lining in the cloud of infamy that hangs over his home who tries to make capital of his shame and heal with golden guineas the hurt that honor feels well he too may be a law-abiding citizen but ten thousand such souls if separated from their gall might play hide-and-seek on the surface of a copper cent for a hundred years and never find each other dignity is but a peculiar manifestation of gall it is the stock in trade of fools if almighty god ever put up great dignity and superior intellect in the same package it must have got misplaced they are opposing elements as antagonistic as the doctrines of infinite love and infant damnation knowledge makes men humble true genius is ever modest the donkey is popularly supposed to be the most stupid animal extant excepting the dude he's also the most dignified since the extinction of the dodo no pope or president rich in the world's respect no prince or potentate reveling in the pride of sovereign power no poet or philosopher bearing his blushing honors thick upon him ever equaled a blind donkey in impressive dignity as a man's vision broadens as he begins to realize what a miserable little microbe he is in that mighty immensity studded with the stupendous handiwork of a power that transcends his comprehension his dignity drains off and he feels like asking to be recognized just long enough to apologize for his existence when i see a little man strut forth in the face of heaven like a turkey cock on dress parade forgotten eons behind him blank time before him his birth a mystery his death a leap in the dark when i see him pose on the grave of forgotten races and puff himself up with pomposity like a frog in the fable when i see him sprinkled with the dust of fallen dynasties and erecting new altars upon the site of forgotten fanes 
yet staggering about under a load of dignity that would spring the knee joints of an archangel, I don't wonder that the Lord once decided to drown the whole layout like a litter of blind puppies. A lecture on Gaul were woefully incomplete without some reference to the press, that Archimedean lever and molder of public opinion. The average newspaper, posing as a public educator, is a specimen of Gaul that cannot be properly analyzed in one evening. Men do not establish newspapers for the express purpose of reforming the world, but rather to print what a large number of people in a particular community want to read and are willing to pay for. A newspaper is simply a mirror in which the community sees itself, not as it should be, but as it actually is. It is not the mother, but the daughter of public opinion. The printing press is a mighty phonograph that echoes back the joy and the sorrow, the glory and the shame of the generation it serves. I have no more quarrel with editors for filling their columns with entities than casting shadows when they stand in the sun. They know what kind of mental pablum their people crave, and they are no more in business for their health than is the merchant. They know that should they print the grandest sermon that ever fell from Massillon's lips of gold, not twenty percent, even of the professedly pious, would read it, but that a detailed account of a fragrant divorce case or international prize fight will cause ninety-nine percent of the very elect of the Lord to swoop down upon it like a hungry hen-hawk on an unripe gosling and fairly devour it, then roll their eyes to heaven like a calf with a colic and wonder what this wicked old world is coming to. The editor knows that half the people who pretend to be filled to overflowing with the grace of God are only perambulating pillars of pure gall. He knows that the very people who criticize him for printing accounts of crimes and making spreads on sporting events would transfer their patronage to other papers if he heeded their howling, that they are talking for effect through the crown of their felts. Speaking of prize fights, reminds me that a governor who, after winking at a hundred brutal slugging matches, puts his state to the expense of a legislative session to prevent a pair of gladiators pounding each other with soft gloves, is not suffering from lack of gall, that those pious souls who never suspected that pugilism was an insult to our civilization until they got a good opportunity to make a grandstand play, then whereas and resoluted themselves black in the face and meant its brutality, should be presented with a medal of pure brass. Politics is said to make strange bedfellows, but I scarce expected to see a shoestring gambler and would-be Don Juan lauded by ministerial associations as our heroic young Christian governor. Gall? Why, George Clark presumes to give Bismarck pointers and Congress advice. Nobody knows so well how to manage a husband as an old maid. A bachelor can give the father of a village pointers on the training of boys. Our northern neighbors know exactly how to deal with the nigger. The man who would starve but for the industry of his wife feels competent to manage the finances of the country. People who couldn't be trusted to wean a calf tell us all about the creator of the cosmos. Sam Jones wants to debate with Bob Ingersoll, and every fork to the creek economist takes a hard fall out of Henry George. The APA agitators prate loudly of freedom of conscience and insist on disenfranchising the Catholics. We boast of religious liberty, then enact ironclad Sunday laws that compel Jew and pagan to conform to our creed or go to prison. The proebs want to confine the whole world to cold water because their leader haven't sufficient stamina to stay sober. Men who fail to make a living at honest labor insist on entering the public service. Political parties charge up to each other the adverse decrees of providence. Atheists deny the existence of God 
because he doesn't move in their set, while ministers assume that a criticism of themselves is an insult to the Creator. But to detain you longer were to give a practical illustration of my text. I will be told that gall is a necessary evil, that a certain amount of audacity of native impudence is necessary to success. I deny it. Fame and wealth and power constitute our ideal of success, folly born of falsehood. Only the useful are successful. Father Damien was the grandest success of the century. Alexander of Macedon, the most miserable failure known to human history, with the possible exception of Grover Cleveland. Alexander employed his genius to conquer the Orient, and Cleveland his stupidity to ruin the Orient. The kingdom of the one went to pieces, and the party of the other is now posing as the lost tribe of the political Israel. Success? A ghoul must give up his gold to the grave. The sovereign surrender his scepter. The very gods are, in time, forgotten, are swallowed up in the voiceless, viewless past, hidden by the shadows of the centuries. Why should men strive for fame, that feather in the cap of fools, when nations and peoples perish like the flowers and are forgotten? when even continents fade from the great world's face, and the ocean's bed becomes the mountain's brow. Why strive for power that passes like the perfume of the dawn, and leaves prince and pauper peers in death? Why should man, made in the mortal image of immortal God, become the subservient slave of greed, and barter all of time for a handful of yellow dross to cast upon the threshold of eternity? Poor and content is rich, and rich enough with a roof to shelter those his heart holds dear, and table furnished forth with frugal fare, with manhood's dauntless courage and woman's deathless love, the peasant in his lowly cot may be richer far than the prince in his imperial hall. Success? I would rather be a fox and steal fat geese than a miserly millionaire and prey upon the misfortunes of my fellows. I would rather be a doodlebug burrowing into the dust than a plodding politician trying to inflate a second-term gubernatorial boom with the fetid breath of a foul hypocrisy. I would rather be a peddler of hot peanuts than a president who gives to bond-grabbers and boodlers privilege to despoil the pantries of the poor. I would rather be a louse on the head of a lazar than lord high executioner of a theological college that, to preserve its reputation and fill its coffers with filthy lucre, brands an orphan babe as a bawd. I would rather watch the stars shining down through blue immensity and the cool mists creeping round the purple hills than feast my eyes on all the tawdry treasures of Ophir and Ind. I would rather play a cornstalk fiddle while pickaninnies dance than build of widow's sighs and orphan's tears a flimsy bubble of fame to be blown adown the narrow beach of time into eternity's shoreless sea. I would rather be the beggar lord of a lodge in the wilderness, dressed in a suit of sunburn, and live on hominy and hope, yet see the love-light blaze unbought in truthful eyes, than to be the marauding emperor of the mighty world, and know not who fawned upon the master, and who esteemed the man. End of section 31